Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. Our guest is Marxist-Leninist writer Greg Godels. He was last with us on the podcast back in November of 2020. Greg has been writing about the Russia-Ukraine war for the Marxism-Leninist Today publication. I am joined by 11 of my classmates. Environmental lawyer for a number of years and still have my hand in a few things. For those of you that have noisy uh, blowers, you should move to California. We are outlawing all the gas-powered ones, so mm-hmm. oh, we only have electric ones out here. Good move. Uh, Alden. Uh, well, I'm uh, about 500 miles north of Jerry, uh, but we were together in Dunster House together. Uh, I live in San Mateo, California, just south of San Francisco. Yeah, Bill Collins. I live in Aiken, South Carolina, been here a little over 30 years, came here to work at the murder site, and I'm all retired now after my stint in the Navy and then Westinghouse in Pittsburgh. Hi, uh, I'm Doug Shapiro. I live in Louisville with my wife and uh, two dogs who are rather noisy, and they love to uh, chase almost anything that they see moving on the ground outside. (laughs) Okay. John. Oh, hi, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, see, I've been an editor and writer for a long time. And other than that, nothing too much. A, 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 I'm now a luxuriator. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> a luxuriator. All of it. Um, Nick Bancroft, uh, south of Boston, um, celebrating a, uh, a rainy day here um, and the graduation of a grandson from Gallatin College in NYU. All righty. Peter Lissavoy. I'm an ed- editor and writer up in the northern tip of New Hampshire. All right, Spencer. Hi, Spencer from uh, today, a little bit cloudy Florida, uh, writer, uh, historian, and believer in devotee of sustainable development. Mm-hmm. All righty, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> living and still working in New York City, um, fighting environmentally damaging boondoggles uh, that take critical public funds away from human needs. Okay. And Mason, are you back in Maine now? I'm back in Maine where it's uh, cold and drizzly. Welcome to spring in New England. (laughs) (laughs) I was supposed to uh, go to my reunion next weekend since I'm a class ahead of you guys. Uh And then a rich friend called up and offered me a free fly fishing trip to Cuba. So I said the hell with the reunion and uh, (laughs) I'm flying to Cuba next week. Open for the best. Oh, good. Oh. That's great. Great. Uh, Peter Grilly. Oh, cool. Yeah. Hi. It's, um, I live in the town of Harvard, the town, not the school. Um, and it's cold and gray and grizzly, grizzly here as well today. Looking right. forward to the discussion. And now we go to uh, Greg uh, Godels and uh, welcome. How are you? And thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Ken. It's a pleasure. It's it's good to be back and see some faces that I, I remember. 
I'm too old to remember all the faces that I've met before, but and some new faces. And um, I've I'm I never I don't speak to this usually when I talk politics, but I'm retired from the wine business. That's what I did when I had to make a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been a political activist uh, since maybe the early 70s when I was a graduate student. And my politics, contrary to the usual story, the older I get, the more radical I get. So mm-hmm. that's the direction I've been uh, heading. And I've, I have a blog, a regular blog. Um, I write for a, a website called Marxism Leninism Today. And uh, we've just started uh, in the last year, myself and a friend, a liberal friend, a podcast called Coming from Left Field, which uh, we get along, even though our politics are very different, but allows us to to capture people from uh, different perspectives on the left, coming from left field, from a liberal perspective, which my my buddy Pat, he secures people with that perspective, and I go in the other direction. so that's that's who I am. I'm in Pittsburgh, and it's turning into a sunny day, but it started off as a rainy and ugly day, as it often does in Pittsburgh. Well, let, let me just say, uh, back in February, let's go back to February. Early in February, I was uh, with a group, a small group, on a corner in Pittsburgh, cold, cold day, holding a sign, no war in Ukraine. This is before the war began. And... Uh, we didn't draw flies. No one was interested in the war in Ukraine at all. Then on the 24th, it broke out. And um, what I found interesting was the left, and I'm speaking now of the broad left from liberals, the Democratic Party, all the way to the radical element, were, were basically frozen. And the majority of people immediately jumped on the uh, pro-Ukraine bandwagon, uh, the war bandwagon, if you will, and those on the radical left that I know and associate with went in a different direction. They tried to point to the, the uh, fact that NATO had instigated this war and it really began in 2014 with a coup in Ukraine, which the US had a big part in. And that Zelensky, for example, had been elected on a peace uh, platform, which he had betrayed essentially. And his popularity, the time the war broke out was down around 30%. And NATO had really baited the United States into this war. And it struck me that this was not a very useful um, break in the broad left. And I, I refer back to, well, World War I. And Vladimir Lenin was, along with Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Leibniz, were outliers in the, in, the, in the left. The left was very powerful in Europe at that time when the war broke out. And his argument was that the war is bad. I mean, forget about who caused it, and who's right or wrong. And, and I reflected on that because, of course, we all know it started in Sarajevo and it was an, uh, a nationalist that shot the Archduke and then it grew and it grew and it grew out of control and 17 million people died as a result. And the real issue, and people now look on it, it was war. It was war. And it was an unnecessary war, a bloody war, and an ugly war. And I was struck again by the fact that no one really is approaching it that way. Everybody's rushed to take sides in this war. And um, in, in the language of the, of the radical left, it's essentially an imperialist war. And no one benefits. People die, and there's no good that comes of it. So in short, that's the position I've taken. I've written maybe four articles on this. In some cases, I take the, the, the immediate to task because 
the media has been an agent really of selling um, um, the war uh, and siding with the Ukrainians in this country. And Europe is slightly different. But um, that's essentially what's happening. And I think in the last, let's say, two weeks, uh, one of the greatest contributions, this may sound odd for a radical leftist to say, but the greatest contribution perhaps to understanding this war was Pope Francis, who came out and said, look, uh, this probably began with NATO barking on Russia's doorstep, but Russia did the invasion. And I think we should talk to both sides and end the war and stop the bloodshed. So that's the position I'm taking. I think it's, it's, it's different than the, 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 the standard, standard position that people are taking. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Well, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I, yeah, I agree 100%. The, uh, it's like uh, they had a mad bear and they baited it uh, and they kept baiting it and then, it, uh, then they had the war. But I do think that someone's benefiting also, of course, uh, weapons, oh, yeah. the, the uh, weapons industry. And that's the real problem. I think, um, I think some of the people who have analyzed the growth of fascist movements say as far as fascism goes that the military when when the profit when the profits begin to be mainly centered on military appropriation of profits then then the politics be, to justify it becomes warped and you get the ultra nationalist and you get the fear mongering you get all sorts of rationales as why there to be a war but driving it i believe to me are these in, people who gain people some people are gaining from it and um and i think that they do cross over from right into so-called left or liberal elements who seem to want to gain from it also uh, it's almost as if you have to figure out where their money is coming from but it's a very dangerous situation because i think it leads to what we're seeing now is these efforts to codify to, to uh, normalize censorship in our media and our speech, our politics, to uh, you know, the people are being silenced. People are being uh, kicked out of positions based upon these litmus tests that are being foisted on them in the same frenzy. Uh, you know, so if someone says that, I mean, pretty soon, if someone says that they want to read uh, Russian poetry or something, that will be a sign that they're a contaminated person. So it's a very it's a rotten situation that we're seeing here. But I mean, Greg, don't you don't you feel that it was the issue of uh, Ukraine going after self determination that really hooked uh, you know hooked um, us in, on in in the in the effort? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, that's that's the uh, that's the slogan that's been uh, been put forward. But when you reflect on how that's been used and misused. Uh, and it's selectively used, particularly uh, from the perspective of the U.S. government. For example, Vietnam, you go to Vietnam and you see that uh, South Vietnam was created, created out, of, out of nothing. I mean, when, when the, the Vietnamese liberation movement grew to the point that they threw the French out, the U.S. constructed a country called South Vietnam. It didn't exist, but it was an immediate uh, creation. And then the question of uh, siding with the self-determination of South Vietnam, 
was the instigating factor in an entire war, a bloody war that went on for years and years and cost millions of, of lives. You find that again and again. Self-determination is, uh, it's, it's easy to drag out, but look, I mean, uh, there's a, it's really about governments, isn't it? I mean, it's really not the will of the people. That's, that's what determines self-determination when they rise against the force. But the, the Ukrainian government, frankly, is not legitimate. I mean, it was, it's, it's created out of a coup in 2014. Um, and so it illegitimizes that government. It's never been a stable government. So I don't know. I mean, who's, who's to say what self-determination for Ukrainians is? Obviously, there are Russian-speaking people in the Donetsk and Luhansk area who now they have their self-determination. They claim that came at the hands of the Russians. So we want to get in the complexity of this question of self-determination. Where does it lead us? It's, it's, it's a drawing room, becomes a drawing room uh, debate rather than people saying, stop the war, stop the killing and let people decide what they want on their own. The war isn't, the war isn't determining, isn't giving anyone the right of self-determination. It just simply isn't. It's just killing people. Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine didn't invade Russia. That's point number one. Point number two is the Ukrainians have shown remarkable determination to oppose the Russians. That is self-determination in itself, their willingness to fight against the Russians, against what on paper was a vastly superior force, and yet the Ukrainians are willing to fight. Uh, that, to me, is pretty strong evidence of self-determination. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, the question of starting a war seems like an important question, but if we again reflect on World War I, we know how the war started, but that was not the important question. The important question was, how do you stop the bloodletting once it begins? How, I mean, Ukrainian lives are, Ukrainians are dying, and we don't have an opportunity to ask them before they die if they're willing to die for these causes. I mean, some people argue that uh, Ukraine is a democracy. Well, it isn't. I mean, they outlawed all 11 opposition parties. That's what Zelensky has done. Before the war. Yeah, before the yeah, war. Before the war. So it is a democracy in that sense. You don't have opposition parties. So what are we defending here? I mean, when we really break it down. So, yeah, I mean, the, it, Russia, that's what I, I fight on both fronts. And I agree with you. Russia started the war. Russia is wrong. And all the apologies that Putin and others give are just that. I find it interesting, and I'd ask you to reflect on this. What Putin says about that war, about why he went to war, is almost a mirror image of what we say when we go to war. Humanitarian interventionism, which, of course, we invented that term. Samantha Power invented it with a book. It justified going into Yugoslavia and helping destroy it. It justified Iraq. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. It's exactly what Putin is saying. That's the hypocrisy of the whole thing. I mean, I'm not defending Putin. I mean, that's often what I'm accused of with the position I'm taking. Wrong to invade. I didn't think he would, and I was taken aback when he did. But no, he's wrong. He's wrong, and and he's. The sad thing is, in the United States, we're listening to an apology for an invasion on the part of Putin, which mimics and mirrors what we say when we evade a country. Kosovo, we did it in Kosovo. We saved the people of Kosovo from the Serbs. You know, that's what he's doing. He's saving the people of Dohansk 
Luhansk and, and Donetsk from, from these ugly Nazi uh, uh, Ukrainians. And the truth is, this Azov group is a Nazi group. There's no question about it. You know the history of Ukraine and you know who uh, Stefan Bandera was and you know how he collaborated. Even when after World War II, the Banderaites were still fighting and they were Jew killers. I mean, that's who they were. They were Nazis. And their, their history goes back to that. Uh, so you have that element too. None of which justifies this kind of bloodletting. You know, once we get into the the dispute between, well, you know, the Ukrainians aren't all together good and they're not treating the people in Luhansk well and the Russian speaking people have had their rights taken away while we go the other way and we say the Russians weren't invited in, what are they doing there? We're, we're debating when what we should be doing is stopping the war. We should be stopping the war. We should insist that all parties negotiate. That's what the Pope is saying. I think that's a sensible position and being an atheist is one of the few nice things I say about the Catholic Church. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry. You know, Greg, it's interesting to hear you lay out what caused Putin to justify the invasion. My son has a master's in national security and intelligence methodology. And he's been telling me for the last two years, we're pushing Russia, we're pushing them as NATO surrounds it more and more and more. Now looking at Finland and Sweden, he says, you know, we're going to trigger an invasion. He's been telling me that for two years. Wow, that's so amazing. Exactly what you're saying. That's incredible. And of course, Putin's justification, frankly, sounds a lot like, frankly, Hitler's justification in World War II. You know, we have to save our German-speaking brethren, uh, etc. But my question is, okay, I understand what caused this. How the hell do we get out of it at this point in time without causing World War III? Right, and we have to make the commitment to, to put aside all the pedophagy and talk about ending the war. That's a beginning. Because right now, most people are caught up in, well, the truth is, if you look at the last Pew poll, Ukraine is so far down the list, it doesn't show up on the list of concerns by Americans. It's, yeah, only, a, it's only a concern for the US government because it's our war too. I think it's Richard Falk who recently said, there's really three wars here. There's the Ukraine-Russia war. There's the U.S.-Russia war. What's the third one? The NATO war with, uh, with, uh, with Russia too. It's a mess and, and it's self-serving. And we need to clear the fog and say, stop the war and insist on negotiation. The fact that the left, the broad left is not in the streets is shameful and shocking. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. We, we, we oppose war and we should oppose war. So, you know, but it's, it's to hear your son say that. And that's what I'm hearing too. I'm hearing that this has been, uh, I mean, it's not a mystery. Uh, they promised the Soviet Union when it existed, they promised uh, Gorbachev that they would not intrude into Eastern Europe. And of course they've done just the opposite. As far as my friends who argue that Russia, you know, they, they were in Syria, they were helping the Syrians, uh, against US imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. But if his goal was to do something noble, he certainly failed because they're doing terrible in the war. They're losing, they're losing troops. They made NATO more aggressive. They have more weapons now in Ukraine. So when, if, if his concern was that they were arming Ukraine and NATO was on his doorstep, he's only made it worse. Going to war was a blunder on his part. Good. Can we reach a point where we can agree that it's the war that's bad and mm -hmm. there's nothing noble about either sides. Every day I pick the paper up and I see an account 
an account of the tragedy of Ukraine, and it's moving, and, and probably it's true, much of it's true, some of the atrocities they claim, but I never saw this about Iraq. I never saw a U.S. journalist going and interviewing people who were the victims in Iraq of our bombings. You never saw this kind of a thing. Perhaps it has to do with skin color. I don't know, but- Yeah, I think that's race. I mean, don't you think that uh, has I to do I think it's race. a big part of it. It's a big part of it. But uh, it, it's, it's amazing how much, and, and it, it isn't resonating with the American people. That's the interesting thing. As I say, in a few polls, Ukraine is not what concerns Americans. What's in, uh, concerning Americans is inflation, is, is, is healthcare costs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. George, George Jones. So let me just comment that I, I think that in terms of the response to the, the, the impact on the Ukrainian people, I think it absolutely is an issue of race. There hasn't been any outcry about 100,000 Ukrainians coming to the U.S. What, would the, what, what, what do you think the situation would be for 100,000 Haitians? Exactly. exactly. But I have a question. I have a question. And let me preface it with a comment that I can expand on if you if you desire. I think we sometimes, especially in this country, tend to fall into the two wrongs make a right argument. But let me ask you, I, I'm not a, an expert on the situation in Russia and Ukraine at all. But it seems to me, at least my expectation was that Ukraine didn't stand a chance and that Russia was gonna go in to overthrow the government, install a puppet regime, and that would be the end of it. That didn't happen. But if that had been the end game, if that had been the end game, what do you think our, that the implications would be for NATO, for the US and for the countries that surround, that, that are, are surrounding Russia yeah, right now. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't, can't look into Putin's minds. I don't know. Maybe you could elaborate on that. You said you could elaborate on the question. Well, well the fact that a puppet, a, a puppet regime had already been installed. Why do you, why just start with the hypothetical puppet, puppet regime that Russia would install? The U.S. already put in. Because, John, because my question is, would that then have been a prelude to doing the same thing to other countries? Would Latvia and Estonia have been next? No, I don't think necessarily, but who knows? But anyway, well, uh, even know, the regime, regimes all over the world, including the one in Ukraine. You have to place Russian politics, Ukrainian politics on a, in a global global sense. What's happening with people? Why, why are governments, essentially globalization has collapsed. You know, for a decade or so, <laughs> we all believe that the world had changed. It was changed definitely. Uh, U.S. triumphalism, triumphalism came after the decline of the Soviet Union. It's a new world. Everything's interconnected. There'll be no more war. That crashed in 2000 and 2007 with the economic crisis. And countries became predatory. Countries became, well, I got to get mine because the economy, had, the global economy had really collapsed. And international trade had been, has been down now for the last 15 years or so. So we have governments that are more authoritarian. I don't know what that word really means, but it's used. But we have governments going right. We have governments that we don't know what direction they're really going in, but, but they're anti-immigrant, et cetera, et cetera. What does it reflect? It reflects a broad, broad unhappiness, a, a broad dissatisfaction with institutions, the destruction of the center in almost every country. Century guys has no resonance in this country. It has no resonance in Greece. It has no resonance in France. All the classic uh, 
uh, Christian democratic parties and social democratic parties have collapsed because of this, this, this the, things are not going well for people. And what, how does that end? It ends with war. We saw that, we've seen that historically, that de- for a Marxist like myself, the data for science, a scientific look at society is history. And so you see these kind of things, this kind of uh, discontent, this kind of decoupling of, of the world, the rise in nationalism, Brexit, for example, all these things are contributing to hostility. But back to the question, Russia has not exhibited any aggressiveness with Latvia, with Lithuania, with Poland, you know, with Estonia. Um, it, it, it's been on a def- defensive posture for the most part. Whether it should have went into Georgia, the Sosetia thing, I, I can't speak to that. But it clearly was not precipitated by them. Kazakhstan is a, is a hot point on their borders. But they were guaranteed that this, encro- this in- intrusion into Eastern Europe, this uh, encroachment upon their territory right to the edge of Russia uh, would not happen. But why did he invade? I can't read his mind, but I don't see him as a, as a global threat, certainly not to the US. I mean, how can we have 800 bases around the world and talk about a global threat from Russia when there are no Russian bases within 10,000 miles of us. Hmm. Alden. Um, I, I, I am very uh, interested in, in the, the sort of global context and the, uh, the 35,000 feet context. Uh, I tend to be a little bit of a pragmatist though. And I'm trying to think, so, so what do we do now? Uh, yeah, okay, made a bunch of mistakes in the past, but, it, but, but here we are now, it seems to me that, that uh, if we're going to get some kind of compromise, it, it's going to have to be, uh, Putin's got to get something. He, he's, he's, not going to, he's not going to give up without getting something. And that's yeah. prob- probably, well, half, I think that's... Pro- probably half of Ukraine, uh, or at least the eastern parts of Ukraine. Um, is, is that satisfactory? Is that, a, is that a pretty good compromise? And is that, does that reward him for uh, the invasion? He did it after all invade. Maybe, maybe he was threatened and maybe he, we baited him into doing it, but he did it after all invade. He, he invaded and he bombarded the cities mercilessly. I mean, the destruction of all kinds of property and infrastructure by the Russians. I mean, that wasn't done by the Ukrainians. Yeah, and well, it's very, it's very easy. To, it's easy to start a war and very hard to end one. That goes back right. to the question of practicality. What do we do now? Putin at this point does not appear to have an exit ramp. And that's a problem. That's a problem. His forces. I, I don't have a con- I don't have a I don't have a conclusion to any of this, of course, but one factor that we're not discussing at all, it surprises me, the relationship of uh, Russia and Ukraine going back hundreds of years. So they have a thing going on between them culturally that is uh, in a way bigger than all this stuff or or at least as important. And, uh, you know, uh, as you, I'm sure you've all heard, uh, uh, Putin has, or people, I think it was Brzezinski in our country who said without Ukraine, Russia can have no empire. Ukraine is the is the pivotal piece 
uh, culturally for the Russians. They're so, so similar. They have the same religion. And uh, so taking over Ukraine is historically, culturally, something that is very, very important to people who think like Putin. On the other hand, the, uh, the, uh, no one was t- treated worse uh, in, in World War II by Stalin than the Ukrainians. <clears throat> the, the enforced famine and transportation of people. So there's a, there's a memory of that too. And I, I don't see how you're gonna get, I don't, I don't know how the United States or anyone else could <clears throat> impose a truce because uh, this is one of those wars where they're gonna have to fight it out for a long time, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where it is. It is going to take a long time to resolve this. But let's go back to Minsk. Minsk, Minsk II was the last time the Russians and the, and the Ukrainians sat down to talk. It, in fact, was the Ukrainians who said, forget about it, particularly when we started feeding weaponry to, uh, to the Ukraine. Ukraine, we, we, just, we just voted to send $40 billion worth of aid, most of which is military aid, to the Ukrainians. The Russian military budget is something like $68 billion. So when we talk about the bully, yeah, they're the bully, they're the invader, I agree with all that, and they're wrong. But let's be realistic, what's keeping Ukraine going is material, it's not spiritual, it's not that they're fighting hard, it's that they're getting the kind of military aid, kind of intelligence support and so on, that allows them to beat the hell out of the Russians. I don't have an opinion on who should win a war that's a bad war to begin with, but I think we got to go back to Minsk and encourage, we don't encourage them to stop the fighting by sending $40 billion worth of military aid to them, but we do have a voice, we do now have a connection to how they conduct this war because we've given them so much military support. So we can urge our politicians to say, look, you need to sit down, you got right now you're doing well right now russia's actually on the defensive sit down and discuss this in the war zelensky people don't know this but zelensky won with 71 percent of the vote when he won for ran for president it was an anti-war vote that's what elected him he, he pledged to, to make peace with the russians and then once the pressures got on him and the invasion came uh, the idiot invades the country his, he had sunk to 31% of the popular vote. So there is there are mechanisms to pressure a settlement here. That's why we have a UN, isn't it? I mean, isn't that why we have a UN? I mean, we want to urge these things to happen. In other places, we've urged people to stop the, the confrontation, stop the war. But what, I mean, looking at it just from the point of view of the US and the United States interest, I mean, what is our interest at this point? Well, I think behind all this, if you pull the curtain back, what you'll find is we are trying to break connection between China and Russia. We, we, we view China as the great rival. They're the great rival. Economically, they're the great rival in terms of influence. I mean, can you imagine, I don't know if you all follow that, that conflagration over uh, the Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands voted to allow Chinese security people to come in and train their police people. 
It was an international uproar. The Australians went crazy. How can you do this? The Chinese let them in. We'll do it for you. This is the level, the intensity of a conflict between the US and its allies in China. It's unnecessary. It's totally unnecessary. The hostility with Russia before the war has been ginned up. As I, one of the articles I wrote, uh, I talk about the Pew polls and they show that hostility against Russia is just accelerated from five, 10 years ago, where one time we saw them as you know, economic rivals, as, as competitors. Now we see them as existential threat. How can that be? How can we view Russia as an existent? They're not an existential, existential threat to us. So we need to get over that. We need to urge our politicians to urge other politicians to get to the table and negotiate an end to a war that can benefit no one. Certainly not the people. Maybe some politicians, and I think earlier, was it Georgia, someone said um, the military. Look, one of the reasons we're, we're, we're pushing this so hard is natural gas. Let's be frank. And we stopped, we stopped uh, uh, the deals that were constructed that had been there in place for so long with Russia to supply natural gas, which actually was a kind of uh, peace link because it kept everybody cool. And we destroyed that. This war destroyed that and now our LNG industry, which couldn't get off the ground, that's why fracking failed a few years ago, why all the, all the Wall Street investors pulled back away from fracking. Now we're going again. Now Europe is looking for new sources for natural gas. So is there, are there imperial economic material gains to the, for the US? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons we pushed it. And it goes back to the Trump administration. Trump really started this natural gas thing, trying to twist the arm of the Europeans to stop buying Russian natural gas. Mm. Uh, Spencer. Yes, um, I've always uh, been pushing the idea of uh, wanting for the idea of uh, a negotiated settlement. But my recent uh, as thing goes on, uh, even if a ma huge majority uh, uh, try to get a settlement, uh, the minute you start talking about settlement, it, the discussion, the people at the table go back to just what is happening here on this uh, program, you know, that uh, there are all those historical reasons that have to be ironed out, the post-World War II things that have to be worked out, all the, uh, the geopolitical interests. So uh, I, I think that, that uh, Russia will always wind up being like... Uh, Andrew Jackson and Chief Justice Marshall, the West has got its comp, they've made their decision, now let them enforce it. And I think that uh, their, uh, their interests are uh, political and uh, the th things that uh, Peter were talking about, and I've sort of uh, swung around to his, uh, uh, in recent weeks, uh, view that the, uh, this is gonna be uh, settled by a war of attrition I think that the uh, decision makers will be the economic dynamics that are unfolding that you see around the world, like, for instance, the uh, inability of, uh, of the export to wheat, uh, the Russian farm, or the Ukrainian farmers, things like that, not to be, take up time talking. But I think it's going to be a, a war of attrition of different, of different elements like that. And at that point, then, 
the balance of the uh, of the economic attritions and the misery that it's falling all, all over the world will uh, they'll reach some settlement. John, I don't want to I don't want to be misunderstood. I I wholeheartedly uh, am and very much heartened by Greg's uh, point that. The, the, the war itself is ridiculous, it's terrible, and uh, the dangers of a world war are so obvious. And um, surely, if there were any way that we could vote on or support putting pressure on both sides to, to, to stop the war, this is, this is, I mean, that's a wonderful hope and analysis. I, <clears throat> I agree with that completely. Uh, on another of course, another factor though of what this war means for us uh, at, a, at another level, there is, a, there is a meaning because here we are in our country in a democracy that is obviously so shaky at the moment. You know, In our lifetimes, we've never seen the democracy in the United States so threatened and uh, in, in hot water and it seems to me that if, if, if Russia had really walked into the place and taken it over and, and made it part of Russia and ended whatever little, ex Ukraine is, is, is uh, corrupt and has its problems, but it's a kind of a democracy. It's a hope, hope to be a democracy. It's going in that direction. And we, we need more of that in the world, I think, uh, uh, especially in our situation here, that if we lost that, if, if, and supposing, Macron had lost and so forth. Our, our own situation here would look all the more dire, right? So I look at it spiritually. Suppose uh, Putin had taken Ukraine. I, I think it would have been a disaster for him. I mean, I think that would have quickly become a disaster for him. Probably before the invasion, given that a large number of people in the Ukraine are Russian speaking, and uh, uh, identified with Russia, identified with the Soviet Union. And they essentially since 2014 have had many of those rights taken away. For example, the schools cannot teach in Russian, which they did in Donetsk and uh, Luhansk in the past. So there was this Ukrainian nationalism was uh, provoking a lot of uh, resistance. And as everyone knows, uh, there was a war going on in, in, in the uh, uh, Donbass area, which was where the most of the Russian-speaking people were, probably Putin had a high estimation from those people. They probably they probably identified with Russia, but by going in and attacking the Ukraine, he lost all those people. So to talk about the the will of the of the Ukrainian people is to not to not understand it's in flux, it's in change. If if Putin had won and occupied Ukraine, it wouldn't last. There'd be re massive resistance. Even people in, in the Donbass who are interviewed now who were pro-Russian are no longer pro-Russian. Who would be pro-Russian after your lives had been disrupted? Who would be pro-Russian after you've, you're forced into uh, immigration? So it was a blunder on his part, but we have to deal with the reality of the moment. And in and, and truth, Ukraine has never really been much of a democracy. Uh, it's been, it, it, they got into a situation very quickly like we're in, and in that uh, big money controls that, that country, owns that country. And it, 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 it vacillated back and forth between different regimes, which were pro-Russian, pro-NATO, back and forth, back and forth. So there's no real clear sense of what the will of the Ukrainian people is. 
And there's no real sense that what they're building is anything, any kind of a democracy. Most importantly, if that's all true, then the most important thing is to stop the bloodletting. There's no point to it. John. Well, I was just wanted to know whether Greg could talk about the Minsk agreements, because it seems to me that if there's going to be a uh, you know, lessening of violence, that the, at least they did get together and talk at the Minsk agreements. Yeah. And so there's a basis there for diplomacy. And of course, the, whether the United States and NATO would foster that kind of uh, resolution, we don't know yet, but I think that I think that's a basis. I think Zelensky on his own probably would have settled over the because all that the uh, that Putin was asking, and before he invaded, it was clear as a bell. I mean, he put it out in a document. Anyone can read it. You can go look it up on the internet. But the document was to guarantee the rights of people in the Donbas. That's what he asked, and he asked for a guarantee. It doesn't seem like it's asking a lot. I guarantee that Ukraine would not join NATO. Two things, mm -hmm. restore the rights of people in Donbass and two, a guarantee. And, and the US said, well, and Biden, uh, Biden said this. Biden says, well, I can't speak for Ukraine. I mean, what nonsense. Of course he can speak for Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> without, without the US, there'd be no Ukraine at this particular point. But he said, I can't speak for them. I can't take away their right to join NATO. That was silly because Zelensky was heading in that direction. So we get back to the table and back to Minsk too. I think Putin has his tail between his legs. He hasn't accomplished what he wants. He can't really win. He would accept that. So we have to urge our people, bear in mind that I think it was 68 people voted in the house against the $40 billion deal. Uh, and none of them were Democrats, not a one Democrat voted against giving them $40 billion in military aid. That's shameful to me. That's mm. the only way you can send the message that we will not tolerate a continual war. Can't do it to the Russians, but they're getting their butts kicked anyway. So we don't need to do that. Nick. Greg, I wonder uh, if you could uh, say something about what you think um, <clears throat> Putin's power structure is at the moment, I, I'm trying to, I fluctuate back between Lenin, Stalin, and Azar, take your pick. Um, <laughs> and, and, and basically the power structure always seems to be between uh, recently the Communist Party, the whole uh, organization of the Communist Party from the little kids on up to the military, to the uneasy relationship of the KGB or its predecessors with all of the above and somebody up at the top uh, playing puppet master. Um, that's kind of the ultimate and it seems like that's where we are now. But what do you think? Well, I, I, I think they have a different culture, a different history, uh, yeah. different views of the world, different experiences. I mean, if you yes. go back to the Bolshevik revolution, uh, you, you have to ask yourself, put myself in their shoes, not say, oh, it was a revolution, it was terrible, it was bloody. Of course, it was all those things, but you have to be able to understand the context, what was happening in the world at that time and how many, my God, I mean, they lost more, more, more people killed in World War I at that particular juncture than anybody. 
And so that food, peace, you know, those were the issues for, for Russians. And so they, would, they accepted uh, a government, a regime that fit that moment for them and fit it well. Yes. And that's been their history. They've, they've uh, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart, which it did, um, they had to scramble to, to reconstruct a different world. And uh, it was tough. I mean, no one complained when, when Clinton was meddling in their politics uh, to help Yeltsin. I mean, nobody, nobody was saying that's, that's not playing fair. It's not an even playing field. When we got IMF money to go there to help him win the election in 1985 or 86 against the Communist Party, which would have won the election without our support, that would have been an interesting development if the Russian people would have voted the Communist Party back in in that period. But we, we gave them the money and we sent our, you know, our adapt uh, uh, campaign people. The people knew how to run campaigns over and they won. They won by, slimly, but they won. And Putin so, came out of Yeltsin. Yes, and, and Putin was the great Putin stabilizer Putin, because Putin and Yeltsin remember, didn't come out of the Communist Party. There was, there was a humanitarian crisis in Russia that really you couldn't point to anywhere else in the world. Uh, the, the, the life expectancy of the average Russian male in 1990 was 71 years. It went down to 57 or 59 years in a decade. So they were, they were just destroyed. I mean, they, 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 they had this, they took all their industry and they gave the people these coupons. Of course, people bought all the coupons up and went back to a capitalist situation where, where all the money was in the hands of a few people, the so-called oligarchs. So this is the situation Russians face. Tuberculosis was rampant. Alcoholism was rampant. Putin comes in. He was the great stabilizer. Say what you want. He stabilized the country, stabilized the economy. He had the, what, 1998 collapse of, of the ruble. And he stabilized all that. And so people voted for him. That's all I can say. I mean, he, he won because he stabilized a very unstable situation. Life expectancy started to go up again and so forth. So that's who he is. Uh, you know, it's not our business to tell the Russian people what to do and who to vote for. Uh, Alden. Well, I was just, I, I was just saying, uh, I'd, I'd be a little cautious to take uh, Mr. Putin's words at face value. <laughs> a little. Well, do, do you trust any politician there or here? I mean, do you take anybody at face value? No. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's, that's the lesson we should learn. I agree with you 100%. Him or anyone else. Yeah. Uh, Hamp, what did you have? We, we are talking about what is Putin's endgame a little bit ago. And I think what we see in the, in the top here from Trump, from Biden, and, and, and now Putin uh, has apparently par Parkinson's, I, I, I believe it is, which uh, he, he, he looks physically in, in, in quite a bit of decline and you can get paranoia in, as Parkinson's goes along in like 20% of the people. So the the uh, world is in in terms of of uh, these these recent leaders. Uh, it, it's it's hard to assume that that there's these days that there's very much of a uh, stable approach, and, yes, and uh, it, it it may be kind of whimsical. Yeah, the social forces that that impact Biden, that impact Putin, that impact all these leaders are so great today. I mean, Putin's Putin's. Uh, popularity was dropping off. Wars are brilliant. Wars, wars are great for bringing the popularity back up, at least in the short run. 
And I think that's what's what's going on. And uh, look, there's a crisis, a political crisis in almost every country. You look at it, it's almost everywhere. Uh, Le Pen in, in, uh, in France now is the, is the regular oppositional candidate to uh, the, whoever finishes first in the, the earlier elections. Uh, you have uh, Orban in Hungary. I mean, he's the, a popular right-wing populist uh, president. Italy went through Berlusconi. I and mean, people looked at Trump, they didn't see Berlusconi. I saw Berlusconi and Berlusconi was Donald Trump before Donald Trump was. So you have this, you have this instability of, of, of countries all around the world. And they produce a Putin who himself is unstable because his situation, his social situation, the forces around him are unstable as well. Bill. Yeah, first of all, what's new about all that? The world has always been unstable politically. It's always been in political crisis. There are moments of apparent peace, more or less, but it's not new. That's one comment. The second comment, going back to Minsk, which came first, Minsk? or Russia's seizure of Crimea? Well, I think Russia's seizure, I think historically, I'm not sure, but I think the Crimea was taken first. Yes, I, I think that's the Well, way Crimea way. was just, what, five or six years ago? And the, the Ukrainians have certainly beefed up their military since then. Putin encountered no opposition, no significant opposition in his annexation of Crimea. There was no fighting force to oppose him. And so that, you can look back and you say, maybe that was his first blunder was to seize Crimea because it galvanized the Ukrainians to get armed and serious about being ready to fight the Russians, which they are. Again, I, 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 you know, you know, I don't know which propaganda to believe. I've read about uh, Crimea from both the perspective of the Western press and uh, an alternative media. And I think maybe he was emboldened by Crimea because, and fact, there was a referendum. People now look back and say it was bogus. Well, I don't know if it was bogus or not, but there was a referendum. And there was, you're right, there was no opposition, but there was, it was so easy. It was so incredibly easy for him. So that may account for why he thought he could easily go into Ukraine uh, afterwards. But again, the history of this era will be written in the future. It's not going to be written today by us because our, our, our sources of information are so frankly biased. I mean, you know, what I'm reading is all over the map. When I read the alternative press, it's, it's, it's shockingly singular when it comes to the mainstream press. I mean, there is absolutely no dissent in the mainstream press from the official U.S. government position uh, that Ukraine was invaded, they're the good guys, and the Russians are the bad guys. And well, that, that's hardly the kind of journalism that we knew from even Vietnam. In Vietnam, you had Journalists and mainstream journalists are willing to speak up and at least give the other side some credibility. But today it's almost unanimous. Yeah, yeah. Jerry. Um, Greg, let's go back for just a second to Putin and his health. Um, certainly some of the pictures we've seen, and I don't know how much I can believe, show a man that's uh, not in the best of health, I'll put it that way. Yeah. But in terms of his own political stability within Russia itself, I know he's quite isolated. But he does have lots of support from the Russian people. They've really galvanized around Putin in terms of support for the war. Yeah. What, what's your guesstimate as to whether or not he can survive politically at this point? Oh, it's going to end up being a disaster for him. But you're right. Up to this point, 
Wars do that. Wars rally people around their leadership, just as George Bush got everyone to rally around uh, Iraq. Um, that's what happens. But in the long run, as you can see with George Bush again, people get sick of it and tired of it. And their kids are, their kids are coming home in caskets and, and uh, their economy is going in the toilet. Uh, so it's going to rebound on him, I think, in the long run. But in the short run, his popularity has never been any higher because of the war and, and the propaganda, their propaganda about why they're conducting the war. They, they try to connect it to May 9th, which was Liberation Day. This has absolutely nothing to do with Liberation Day. I mean, the liberation from the Nazis and, and the sacrifices the, the Red Army made to make that happen have nothing to do with an invasion of Ukraine. Nothing. George. Do you believe that Russia poses an existential threat to the United States? Uh, no, quite frankly, no. I, I, I don't, I'd, I'd welcome hearing where they do. I mean, they have no military bases on our, on our border. They haven't attacked uh, US soldiers or citizens anywhere in the world. Uh, uh, they conduct themselves essentially towards the US the way European countries do. Uh, you know, I, I, let me just say one more thing, and that is, I view the whole thing really essentially as a as a uh, as a trap, a Brzezinski trap. Brzezinski trapped the Soviet Union into going into Afghanistan, created a situation where the Soviets really had no choice. They were invited in actually by the Afghan government, but it was a blunder to do that. But they wanted, Brzezinski and his cohorts wanted a long drawn out Vietnam type war for the Soviet Union. So you don't believe that the Russians- We did it again in Iraq. Interfere with US we, elections. No, I don't, I mean, come on. Uh, th this I think is borders on the ridiculous that there were bots. I mean, again, I'm in an area I don't understand, I'm old, but that there were uh, interventions on Facebook, uh, on the internet, by Russian-based entities. Yes, of course there were, just as there are from every other country in the world. Uh, did they have any effect on the election? No, no, of course not. No one can show that. They, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the Mueller investigation came to nothing. Literally I think it's a lot of bunk. It's a lot of bunk, really. Yeah. I mean, we're getting a lot of bunk in our media all the time like that. We've done more in their elections than they could ever dream of doing in ours. We've meddled successfully in their elections. There's a, a fallacy in, in logic called you're another. And I try to avoid it, but it's almost impossible. And you just use the argument that you're another argument. That is, we do more than they do. I mean, if they do it, we meddle far more than they do. I hate to use that argument because it is a fallacy, but it's certainly attractive because we do meddle in a lot of people's business. And as I mentioned earlier, in 85, 86, we, we had IMF funds given specifically to run an election campaign through our advisors for Yeltsin to defeat the, defeat the Communist Party candidate Zuganov. And the polls all had the Russian Communist Party ahead until that money got into circulation. So if that's not meddling, I don't know what is. I mean, that's, that's demonstrable. I would say that those who meddled, those in our country who meddled in those in that election and others are an existential threat to our existence as a healthy democracy. 
Yeah, yeah. And well, well, Greg, I mean, let me ask you this. Has this, has what's been going on uh, shaken your belief or affected your belief in Marxism? As no, so? no, no, not at all. In fact, <laughs> I had a laugh when I saw the University of Florida close their Marx room after the Russian invasion. What the hell does Karl Marx have to do with uh, <laughs> Putin? And Putin denounced Marxism and Lenin just yeah. before the invasion. He said Ukraine was created by by Lenin. So, I mean, he's no friend of, of us Marxists, uh, anyone that supports Lenin. It's, uh, no, it's not shaking at all. In fact, I think what you're seeing is a return to classical imperialism prior to World War I. The era of globalization is done. The, the uh, kind of ties that were, 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 were forged economically around the world through globalization are now being pulled apart. Uh, we saw with Trump uh, this, all these sanctions that were coming up, uh, using that as a weapon, weaponizing economic sanctions. That's part and parcel of a new era we're entering of good old fashioned John Hobson, Hilferding, V.I. Lenin, imperialism. That was Marxist Leninist writer Craig Godels. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.